0: Awesome, great job, Monica. Um, I want to now invite you to turn in your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter nine, if you would. First Corinthians chapter nine, and Scripture plays many roles in our lives, but one of its most important roles is that Scripture often functions for us like a mirror. Uh, the world 's view is that we discover who we are uh, most truly and most freely, either out there in the world or in here, looking deep within ourselves but One of the functions that Scripture plays is that it helps serve as a mirror so that we see who we actually are and we actually begin to understand ourselves. Now, some of the things that Scripture reveals about us may not always be comfortable. We may not always want to see it just the way we might not always want to see what we find in the mirror in the morning. But Scripture serves us by helping us see who we actually are. And so this passage is very much one of those passages. Uh, we're gonna begin reading at the end of chapter nine so we get the context and then through verse 22. Let's remember as we read, this is God's word. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be Disqualified. This is God's word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May we be willing to look in the mirror this morning as we look at your word, that we might find life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I say the word idol, when you think of an idol, what comes to mind? Maybe I ask you, in your mind's eye, picture an idol. Well, I bet you most of us, or many of us at least, would picture a particular idol from a particular movie scene. And even if you've never seen the movie, you've likely seen a clip or something of the famous Dr. Indiana Jones uh, staring down at this little golden, chubby golden idol with a bag of sand weighing how to grab the idol and make his escape from the temple. And and maybe, just maybe, that scene is burned into your mind the way it is into mine. And, and I love it. It's a scene of wonderful tension. He makes his way through all the traps. He's, he's got the idol. It's right there. His hand is reaching out to take it. And he, like us, are wondering, what are the consequences of this going to be? Is this going to go well? Is this going to go poorly? His hand is reaching out. And if you would, in your mind's eye, insert someone into that scene, the Apostle Paul an aging old rabbi with bad eyes and probably back issues jumps into the scene right before he can grab the idol and yells, stop, do not do it. This is not going to go well, which is what I always want to do when I see that scene in Indiana Jones. I always want to shout, it's not worth it, man. It's just, just leave it there. You're not going to take it home anyway, right? This This is how this passage functions in our lives. The Corinthian church, as it were, is reaching their hand out toward idolatry, oblivious of the consequences that are about to befall them, and Paul jumps in front of them and yells, stop! This is not going to go well. And this passage has been preserved for us today because In a similar way, this passage plays that very function in our lives. Wherever we are in our lives, there is a temptation and a tendency to be reaching out our hand for that next idol, which we'll discuss in a second. And Paul, the apostle, is used by the Lord to be inserted into our lives in the same way. Jump in front of us with this text and say, stop. Don't do it. Idolatry never ends well. Grabbing an idol never has a happy ending. So, the main point today from this passage I think God would have us learn is that idolatry is more common than we think, it is more serious than we think, but it is more straightforward to fight than we think. So first, idolatry is more common than we think. Now, the city of Corinth, you have to get this in your mind's eye, was was built Around the temple of Aphrodite, the god of love and fertility, a thousand people were employed by her temple, and everywhere there were images of her and many other gods. Many other gods, not just her. There were other temples to other gods. There were. There's a scene in one of the uh, the these stories and acts where a whole town's industry is built around selling trinkets and little uh, souvenir-sized statues of their famous god. And so was the case in Corinth, right? They had these these little trinkets. There were, if you could imagine it, souvenir shops with t-shirts that said, I visited the Temple of Aphrodite and all I got was this lousy t-shirt, right? There were little pocket-sized keychain size, right? Imagine this. The equivalent of that is, is what built Corinth. It was one of the main drivers of industry. So walking through the streets of Corinth, you would be unable to not see Aphrodite or one of another hundred uh, of the pantheon of idols in the city. And you think, man, I totally understand why Paul is telling these people to flee from idolatry. I'm so glad we don't have to worry about that in 21st century America, right? Right? wrong. Now, for most of the Old Testament, idolatry is a real physical thing, an actual wooden or metal object that you would worship, uh, and you you would make the source of your life. It would rule your life, what that idol said to do or not do, right, through the teachings of the the you know, the priests or whatever of that religion, whatever you that idol wanted you to do, you would do. You would give it your your money, your affection, your time, your life in the hopes that it would give you something in return. This is what people did with the temple of Aphrodite. They would bring these offerings, they would make journeys. Maybe if they're wanting to have a child, they would give of their time and money and energy in the hopes that they would get something back. But the Bible is also clear that idolatry is not just a problem with physical idols. No, the problem goes far deeper into our souls. For example, in Colossians 3, the Bible says, put to death what is, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So, Notice what Paul is doing there. He's saying covetousness, which is in and of itself, it, it there's no there's no you may not have an idol set up in your house, but You may well worship at the idol of covetousness, always wanting this, always wanting that, always hoping for the next thing, the next gadget, the next house, the next whatever you're, the next golf driver, right? Whatever it is for you, that thing is driving you. I got to make more money. I got to do more things. I got to sacrifice more stuff. I need whatever that is. Paul is looking at that and saying, that right there, that's idolatry too, And the ancient people, we might think, well, they're silly. They have all these various gods, and isn't that silly? No, no, no. It was actually incredibly insightful, because here's what they were doing. You know, there's a god of war. There's a god of this occupation, a god of shepherds, a god of these people, a god of of people sailing the oceans, a goddess of love. There were all these gods that represent all the different desires of the human experience. And so they, they just turned them into an anthropomorphic statue that they could focus on and love and serve. But all of the stuff that was swirling around in the hearts of ancient people is swirling around in our own hearts as well. Tim Keller is helpful here in his book on idolatry. He says this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I know I'll have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. He concludes, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Here's the point. In our day, we may think, well, we don't have a problem with idolatry. No, no, no. Idols are as abundant in 21st century America as they were on the streets of Corinth. Right there, there can be an idol of of a relationship. There can be the idol of money. There can be the idol of security. The the idol of control. I got to control everything in my life. The idol of affirmation by a particular person, or affirmation by a mentor or a boss. Or there could be an idol of children. uh, But with both with people who cannot have children and people who do have children, that can be an idol. There can be an idol of. Listen, man, it gets all the way down to your favorite hobby or your favorite sports team. Look, if you were sad your team lost in the playoffs, okay, everyone is sad. If you were devastated, mm, that might be an idol, right? If you're looking to that to control your week, that's what Paul is talking about. Now, two things from this passage that help us see how common idolatry is and why it's so insidious. And the first is this. First, you cannot serve God and idols, but many try. Now, the later section of this passage, which is, I think, verses 14 through 22, and Paul, he basically arrives at his main point. So we're going to start there and then back up because what was happening in the Corinthian church is that the some of the Christians were going to temples in the city and eating food that was offered during the meal to another god as a ritual practice. Now, we covered earlier a lot of the extra meat would be sold and resold in a million vendors and markets. And Paul is basically saying, look, that is okay to eat. He'll talk about that uh, in the next passage as well. But some we're like, yeah, we're free in Christ. We can, you know, we can go to the temple because you go to the temple for things like sealing a business deal or having a large birthday celebration or marking a big life event, and you'd be invited to participate. And so you'd go, hey, listen, we don't get a lot of meat. There was, in, in, in the ancient world at this time, meat was a rarity, Right? You're going to probably go home fr- from here and have a burger or something. Man, that was foreign to those people. Meat was like a treat. So you get invited to somebody's house, or somebody's celebration rather, at the temple. You're thinking, man, that sounds delicious. And if I have to do a little idolatry along the way, hey, I'm free in Christ, right? Listen, I, I am a Christian now. I'm following Jesus. That's like my main thing now. And if I go to the temple and I, you know, participate in a little ritual, well, what's the big deal? I mean, the idols aren't real anyway. They're just, you know, they're just a little wooden thing. It's not a big deal. Paul says, no, 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 no. You, friend, you don't think you have a problem with idolatry, but you absolutely have a problem with idolatry. You can, you often, this is so insidious, you often think in following the Lord that you can follow the Lord and also something else at the same time but they're mutually exclusive. Paul states it this way, you can't take the Lord's supper, which is the meal of Christ, and then go to the meal of a demon. They are incompatible. You cannot do both, he is pleading with them to see. Now, a number of years ago, here's an example of how, what this looks like in real life. A number of years ago, I knew a, a, a person that, went, uh, that, was in, that was here in El Paso, and they, um, they went to a particular church they said they're a Christian went to a particular church that emphasizes material prosperity. Their church emphasized uh, that, that health and wealth just as much, if not more, as the other things in the Bible. And that person was all about that, uh, that you know desire to live healthy and wealthy and be successful. But when they ended up in poverty and they lost many of their possessions and privileges, they also walked away from their faith in Christ. Now, if you step back, you you see, well, those two things are separate. But for this person, they were trying to do both. They they believed they were a Christian, and then also maybe were serving the God of success. But here's the reality. Any syncretism, any mixing of Christianity with something else destroys the Christianity altogether, and you only end up serving the something else. Because for this person, who, who had gone Approach their faith as a, this is what happened, they approached their faith as a means of getting to what they really wanted, which is the idol of success and prosperity. They wanted the health. They wanted the wealth. They wanted the success. They wanted the, the accolades. And church was their means of getting there. Do you see that? You cannot serve the Lord and the God of success. It just doesn't work. Paul is pleading with the church to see that. Second thing that helps us see how prevalent idols are, is that you can still turn to idolatry even if you've had experiences with God, and many people do. See, the the Corinthians probably thought, well, listen, listen, we don't have a problem with idolatry uh, because we, man, we've experienced salvation from Christ. We've experienced the Lord's table. We've seen all of these wonderful things. So we would never go from here into idolatry. That's crazy. That's not even a danger for us. And Paul walks them back to the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation experienced so much, didn't, didn't they? Uh, he, Paul talks about them going through the Red Sea and being sustained in the wilderness and all of these amazing experiences with God. And then points out, yet with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Meaning, despite all these experiences, they still turned to idolatry. So if you think, well, I've had this experience, or I've been baptized, or I've done this, or I've sat in the church, therefore I don't have a problem with that idolatry, Paul is pleading with you, perhaps you do. Tim Keller, in his book, uh, shares the story of a young woman who was attending his church in New York City, who was an accomplished musician, and played in well-known ensembles and groups in New York, and she attended church. She was a Christian. She perhaps had powerful encounters with the Lord at times of worship or times reading her Bible. And yet she was in great trouble. She was completely wrapped up in depression and anxiety and could barely function, even after going to the doctor and getting medication for that, even after seeing a therapist for a a long time. And so in an attempt to save her, she gave her, uh, this woman gave Keller, her pastor, permission to talk to her therapist so that they could try to collaborate on some kind of plan to try to help her. And the counselor told Tim Keller that he, he began to see very clearly that this woman was completely consumed by her parents' approval. And she was a very, very good musician But perhaps she wasn't great. She was not the world-famous virtuoso that her parents raised her to be. And her parents, many times, gave a half-approval mixed with perhaps some subtle disappointment that she wasn't more well-known. She didn't get the first chair in that particular orchestra, right? That, That she wasn't what they hoped she would be. And so her parents' approval was devastating her. And here's, here's the point. Keller realized that despite the fact that she was often in church, that she may have had genuine experiences with God, functionally, her parents' approval was her God. Functionally, her parents' approval was that idol. And Louis Giglio uses this great picture of, of helping us understand the way idolatry functions uh, in our lives when he says, that at the center of every human heart, there is a throne, and there is always something on that throne, and there is always only one thing on that throne. Right? It is either the Lord or an idol or a collection of idols, but, but not both. There's not the Lord and an idol on the throne of your life. So let me just ask you, what might be functioning in your own life as an idol? Every person has personal idols and we are surrounded by a large collection of cultural idols right in America walking through 21st century America if you would right every television ad is offering you many times an idol right playing to your idols they know your idols the advertisers know your idols better than you know they know that your idol of security is going to lead you to buy this product so you can feel safe Your idol of looking successful is gonna lead you to buy this car so you feel successful, right? This, your idol of relationship is gonna get you to sign up for yet another dating service so you feel someone's affection and are stable and safe, right? They know perhaps better than us. There there are all kinds of idols in 21st century America. The American dream, in many cases, is a good dream, but can easily become an idol. Or knowing who you are is a good thing, but self-expression and identity quickly become an idol. Finding someone who loves you and getting married is a good thing, but finding a lover devoted to you can quickly become an idol. And then just dig down into your life. What, What if it got taken away would make your life not worth living? What, if you gained, would you say, now my life finally has meaning? Maybe it's your parents' approval. Maybe it's your child's approval and affection. Maybe it's your comfort, your security. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's the approval of a mentor or a boss. Maybe it's just being in control. Whatever it is, this text is an opportunity to look at what is sitting on the throne of our lives and our hearts right now. Idolatry is far more common and then you think, But second, idolatry is also more serious than we think. Now, idolatry is serious, but we often don't view it as such. Um, I think I've, I've referenced this before, but a number of years ago during the pandemic, we, we bought a fire pit, um, because I just thought, well, I guess we're going to be outside, so we'll have a fire pit. But I did not remember that we had toddlers, and toddlers plus a fire pit is never usually a recipe for success. And the problem with toddlers—the the toddlers have is this, that you tell a toddler not to touch a lot of things, right? If you have a toddler, the phrase don't touch that comes out of your mouth many times. Look, mom, there's gum on the bottom of this chopping cart. Don't touch that. It's not free gum, right, or whatever. So they hear this a million times, and most of the time, let's just be honest, most of the time, if they touch their brother's toy, okay, it's not that big of a deal. But here's the reality. If you touch a fire pit... That's a big deal. So I remember trying to help Ford understand this. And I was like, hey, buddy, don't touch the fire pit. And he's like, okay, okay. And I could just tell in his eyes, he's like, I still kind of want to touch it. But so I I walked him through the consequences. Okay, if you touch the fire pit, it's going to burn your hand. And you haven't had a burn, but burn is when it feels super hot and it scalds and melts your skin and it hurts a lot. He's like, ooh. And then if you get the burn, then we have to go to the hospital. He's like, I don't like the hospital. I know, right? There's going to be other people that are going to be putting things on your hand, poking your hand. It hurts a lot. You're going to be seeing doctors. We're going to be there all night, probably so they can dress this wound. And then you're going to have a bunch of, a series of follow-up appointments with a doctor who will continue to push and prod your hand. And then you will be unable to use that, play, that hand to play your precious iPad for a period of time. And he's just like, oh my gosh. All of a sudden, the don't touch the fire pit became, now I see why not to touch the fire pit. That's what Paul is doing here. He's helping us understand that touching an idol is far more dangerous than we think. And Paul Tripp has this great phrase that helps us understand the center of this danger. He says, what is an idol? It's something in creation that claims the place in my heart that only God should have. Romans 1.25 says that we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. Idolatry is more serious than we think because it is a defiance of our creator, our sustainer, and our Lord of the universe. And so it is taking in our hearts off the throne the one who actually is on the throne in all creation. And that has profound consequences. Two things that help us see that idolatry is more serious than we think is this. Idolatry trades God's salvation for a false salvation. Verse one says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. He's he's using the image of the Exodus, right? God's people... walking through the the Red Sea around them on dry land, escaping from the Egyptian armies, being rescued from Egypt, being saved from Egypt. And yet, that salvation? Well, just a few chapters later, as Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the commands of God, they only make it to Mount Sinai before they try to turn back to other idols. While he's on the mountain, they are down there building a golden calf, like a literal golden calf. Why? Because they wanted someone to save them. They saw that they were in the wilderness, and they thought, who's going to save us? And so they wanted to see something physical that they could say, well, that will save us. They traded the salvation they just experienced for the false salvation and idol offered And this is what idolatry is in our hearts as Christians. It is a forsaking of our salvation. It is seeing what God has done to save us and saying, no, I really need a different salvation, more salvation, another salvation to really save me. That's what idolatry is. That's why it's so serious. And then second, idolatry is also serious because it trades God's sustenance for a false sustenance. Now it references verse three, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now this is the image of God sustaining his people. So they're in the wilderness, they have no source of food, they have no source of water and yet God day after day after day supernaturally provides their source of, of food, of water, of all they need to live and yet You know what the Israelites do? They say, man, we really wish we went back to Egypt because we always knew where our next meal was coming from. And to be honest, yeah, the food was a little better in Egypt. And you're looking at them in the story and you're thinking, sure, the food might have had more variety. You ate it in chains like you were slaves. The slave food is what you want to go back to. You're like, well, at least it was consistent and had variety. And you're like, okay, that's what idolatry is. It is trading God's sustaining grace, God, what God provides in sustainment, for the promise of being sustained by something else. That's what an idol promises. And let me press this just a little more because Paul presses it. He, he makes the amazing theological statement that and the rock was Christ. So what he's saying is that spiritually... This changes the way you read Exodus also. Spiritually, Christ was the one sustaining God's people through the whole wilderness. Christ accompanied them throughout the wilderness. They couldn't see it, but Christ was there with them. And so The point is this, the same God who saved them in Egypt also sustained them. And for the Christian, the same God of the cross that saves us also sustains us day by day with all we need in Christ. Christ promises to provide everything we truly need in this life and in the next. And idolatry is so twisted because we take the sustaining work of Christ himself And we say, now we're gonna look elsewhere. We're gonna look elsewhere. Now, when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand verses five and six. Verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then Paul goes on to, to list a number of times that God's people rebelled and turned to idolatry, even either physically or in their hearts, and experienced God's judgment. Paul wants us to see the only response from God, the right response from God, when he sees idolatry is wrath and justice. Now that's hard to hear, but that is the reality that wrath is justified. God, God must punish evil. And and here's the thing. God's wrath, as we see in Romans, always has a passive and an active component. The active component is there's rebellion, there's injustice, there's evil, there's an active wrath that is poured out against it. But there's also a passive wrath of God giving us over, giving people over to the thing they want and allowing them to experience the consequences of getting what they want. Because here's the reality. What does idolatry want? In its heart of hearts, idolatry is saying to the Lord, not you. I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing you provide. And turning away. And what is God's wrath but him saying, okay. It's him saying, then you are cut off. Then you will experience that. Then my sustaining, uh, I, the one who sustain your very life for now and eternity, am, am allowing you to give yourself over to what you want. Right? That, that, that is sobering and God's wrath is also just. Now here's we got to remember, I, God's wrath against idolatry is not him being mean, it is him being just. Because I want you to I want you to think about this. I think this is true. Every evil in the world traces back to idolatry in someone's heart. Every evil in the world. Why does a dictator kill many kill his opponents, kill with abandon, because he is serving the idol of power. That's what's driving him. Or why does an adulterer commit adultery? Because he or she is serving the idol of of lust or of validation or acceptance. Why does someone see somebody in need and not help them? Why do they hold back? Because they're serving the idol of comfort or safety. All of that is a grievous evil. All of it is injustice. And Paul says, listen, the the physical idol is nothing, but acting that way is demonic. In that way, whenever you defy the Lord and put something else on the throne of your life, look, the demons don't care what it is. They're just happy that you've kicked God off the throne of your life and are serving and worshiping something else. And they rejoice because that's I mean, that, that, that is what they do. They have rejected the Lord and seek to oppose him at every turn. You're acting in a demonic way when you participate in idolatry. That's what Paul is saying. That's how sobering and serious it is. Don't do that, he says. Don't stretch out your hand and burn yourself. But here's the good news. This warning about idolatry comes in the context of paul's letter to the corinthians and what's the theme of the letter from first to last well, uh, chapter two he says for i've decided to know nothing among you but christ and him crucified and chapter 15 he says for i'm delivering to you i deliver to you what is of first importance that christ lived that he died that he was buried right he, it's the message of the cross the message of god's salvation from first to last and the message of god's salvation and the cross are good news for idolaters Look, the reality is that the only hope an idolater has is running to the cross of Jesus Christ. And what good news then that on the cross, Jesus, the only perfect man who ever lived, the only man not corrupted by idolatry, the only man who should receive acceptance and joy and, and rejoicing over by God the Father, that only man, the only perfect man, instead of receiving all those things, went to the cross for us for idolaters, to bear the wrath of God and the justice of God that we deserve. And he does it to save. He does it to bring about a new exodus in which idolaters who are wrapped in chains to other gods could be, those chains could be broken and they could be freed so that that Christians and those who follow Christ would walk through the sea of God's wrath on the dry ground of redemption. The, The cross, look, the cross shows us both the seriousness of idolatry as we see the wrath of God poured out but the mercy of God for every idolater who will turn to him. So we see that it's far more serious than we think, and the cross then is far more serious and far more beautiful than we think. And look, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just encourage you. There is something on the throne of your life, functionally, and I'm going to tell you something about that idol, whatever it is. That idol that you love, it doesn't love you back. It doesn't want your good. It's a cruel taskmaster. It will take all that you have, all of your money, attention, affection, and give you death in return. It's a terrible trade. But Jesus offers something far better. Jesus offers to take your guilt, your shame, your sin, bear it for you, and give you freedom, life, hope, and fulfillment. But that only happens when Jesus is on the throne of your life. A Savior and His Lord. You can turn to Him today. You can be freed of that today. It'll take a lifetime probably to unwrap those chains that are wrapped around you, but today you can experience freedom. And look, if you're a Christian today, let me just encourage you, the Christian life, we've often said, is one of constant repentance. That's what Luther summarized it as. But that constant repentance means running away from idols and running to Jesus and the cross again and again and again. And there is freedom again and again and again. Let me finish that story with Keller and the, the member of his church This orchestra member of Keller's church, when she realized that only her parents' approval that was her functional God, when she saw that, she finally found a way out. She found in God someone who loved her, not because she was good at her profession, not because she was a prodigy, not because she might be successful, but she found in God someone who saw her at her worst and loved her anyway, right? That's powerful. And that finally broke the hold her parents' approval had over her. And she saw, listen, God saves, not my parents' approval. God sustains, not my parents' approval. Man, there's so much freedom in that. So, third and last and briefly, fleeing idolatry is more straightforward than we think. Now, the good news is that Paul gives us a sober warning, which we need to hear, but then he provides a helpful and clear path out of idolatry. The first step is right here, take heed. He says, take heed. (laughs) Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And, And here's the thing. As long as you think, okay, I'm so glad so-and-so is here to hear this message on idolatry because they have got a lot of idols. Like there's someone in my family, man, they definitely got idols. Or somebody in my community group, I've heard them talk and they've man, they've got like five idols. You know. As long as you're there, you're not gonna be helped. As long as you think, okay, I'm I'm standing, I'm good. Paul says, no, no, no. Here's the reality. Everyone has a problem with idolatry. The only difference is whether you realize it and see it and work on it or ignore it and and end up bound and blind by it. That's your only choice. And look, let me just just say this. As a pastor... I think this category of idolatry is far more powerful than we think. And in our generation, in our current culture, we often uh, kind of shy away from categories of sin or categories of idolatry because it feels harsh. It feels judgmental. It feels like, oh, that's not the kind of stuff people want to talk about. They want to talk about encouraging things and positive things. Here's the reality. People are bound by (laughs) idols, and it's only when we see it that they can be freed you and i are often bound by idols and it's only when we see it that we can be freed so the reality is we need to take heed and second we need to flee from idolatry look god's word is such good news here he says no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man meaning you're not the first person to deal with this temptation god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Man, that is such a, a good promise to cling to when you begin to see the hold an idol has in your life. And I, think, I think Paul is so wise and so pastoral here. He, he knows that we just need a clear command. Flee from idolatry in case anyone is confused about my main point flee from idolatry we need to be active in our fling look the reality is this if you're not fleeing idols in your life it doesn't mean they're not there it just means you don't see them right next to you right that's the reality it's just they're there and so just be like okay i don't i don't want to see any idols right they're they're right there they got your their arm around you like hey buddy remember me um And here's the good news. We flee from idolatry, but God promises something. He promises that he's faithful. He promises that he will not allow temptations that that we cannot resist. And he promises that he will always provide a way of escape. If you, look, imagine you are trapped in a room. And in this room, you just think, okay, the walls begin to close in. And and, and you know in your heart of hearts, there's no way out. There's no escape. I'm just going to die here. What are you going to do? You're just going to lay down on the ground and cry, probably. You're going to pound on the walls. ah right But if, you, if somebody slipped you a note and you know in your heart of hearts, there is a secret door in this room, you're probably going to respond differently, right? You're going to be knocking on everything. You're going to be trying everything. You're going to be thinking, I know there is a door in this room and I'm going to get out. Right, that is what Paul's doing for us here. He's reminding us, God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability and he will always provide a way out. Now, the way out may be difficult, may be dangerous, it may be hard, it may be, man, I'm right in the middle of this temptation. I'm, I, I, I am, listen, I, my coworker has invited me out for drinks and I know I should not have built up this flirtation, but there seems to be no escape. Yes, there is. You can walk away. You can call a friend. You can say somebody, to somebody in your community group, listen, man, I shouldn't have let this get this far. I need your help. I need you to come pray for me. There is always a way out. It is a lie from the demons that want to keep you trapped that there is no way out. So look for it, friend. God is faithful. It is there. Flee from idolatry. And third and last, flee toward the Lord. Look, when it comes to fighting idols and fleeing idols, it is no good to replace one idol with another idol, right? You, And the, let me just say this. This is all the world ultimately can offer, meaning you, you flee from uh, stress buying to stress eating. It's like, man, when I got stressed out, I used to buy so much stuff, but now my budget is in control, and you're just munching potato chips, yeah, you are know, like, I don't know, that's good. That's not a good trade. Or you can say, man, I used to be so, you know, so wrapped up in what, what my spouse thought of me. I used to live and die by their approval and I don't do that anymore. And then your boss calls, yes, sir, right away, sir. Absolutely, do you like me? Am I okay? Am I getting a promotion? Do you give me an A, right? And you're like, you just traded your spouse's approval for your boss's approval. That's all the world has to offer. But Christ has something far better. We flee from idols to the Lord. Look, this is where the Exodus story is such a wonderful offer because the Exodus story offers us a way to flee from idolatry to the God who saves, to our true salvation in Christ. And we begin to see, here's the reality, every, every desire in our hearts that points us to an idol is truly and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The acceptance we crave from our parents is found in the salvation of God and God the Father, who calls us a son or daughter, who sees the worst about us and loves us anyway. Right? That—that that is what we flee to. Or are you thinking, okay, I, I got to I gotta plan. I gotta—I gotta control every aspect of my life because I might get hurt. I might get sick. What's gonna happen if I get sick? What's gonna happen if I get this special disease? Look. Endless hours in Wikipedia research is a, is a false functional God that offers no true salvation. You know what's a better salvation? The Lord Himself, who says, now and forever into eternity, I will be with you. Your body will be renewed, and I hold your destiny in my hands. Right? That's such a better place to be. So we flee from the false salvation and the false sustenance of these idols. We flee to our true salvation in Christ and our true sustenance in Christ. And listen, if you ever wonder, man, I notice I'm new around here. We just keep singing kind of the same themes. And then every month I'm kind of, we do the Lord's Supper every month. I mean, it's kind of like we did that last month. Can we do something new? Can we do something kind of a new ritual? Can we there be some smells and bells or something? I mean, something. Give me something here. It just feels like the same thing over and over and over. Look, you know what we're doing on Sunday mornings, church? Do you know what we're doing? We are setting out in what we sing and what we practice the God of our salvation that is far better than every idol but we need to be reminded week in and week out he is life he is freedom he is hope he is the one who holds my life he who's the one who covers my faults he's the one who pays for my sins he is worth following with everything I have he is my savior and you know what If I feel like I can't make it through today, can't make it through this week, that God of salvation, that same God of salvation is also my sustainer. When I think, man, I can't, I'm not, I got no grace left, I got no faith left, I got no strength left, you walk into church, what we're doing is reminding one another, he's a savior, he's a sustainer, he will bring you all the way home. Like that, that is what we're doing. We're going to war, brothers and sisters, every Sunday against the idols of our lives and the idols of our culture and the demons behind them. We're doing spiritual warfare as we see our God as Savior and Sustainer. All right, I need to end. Um, let me wrap up this way with perhaps one of the most important things I brought up earlier, Indiana Jones. Um, now, there's this great theory that in the first Indiana Jones movie, he actually doesn't do anything. He actually doesn't affect the outcome of the story in any way because essentially what happens is they find the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Covenant zaps all the Nazis and so he doesn't really do anything. He doesn't save anyone. The Ark of the Covenant does. Side note, I don't think it's an accurate depiction of the Ark of the Covenant, but I do like watching Nazis get, you know, destroyed by it. Um, it's a foretaste of what's going to happen. So anyway, I'm sorry. That, I'm, I'm getting off. And here's the reality. Only one thing happens in the movie. Literally, one thing changes he reconnects with this woman who was the love of his life and maybe kind of starts to realize maybe she is still. And then by the next movie, he's out gone again. He's just like out there looking for treasure. He's like, and here's the thing, nothing he finds, no, none of the big treasures he's after does he ever keep? Does he ever hold on to? So he's out there movie after movie looking for more treasure, having more adventures. And in the very end... I was so grateful for this resolution. In the very end, he returns home and realizes maybe, just maybe, the treasure was with him all along, right? I know that's cheesy, but I mean, look, listen, this is, this is a picture of each of us, isn't it? Like in Christ, we find our treasure. We find our salvation. We find our sustaining, and we go, I wonder what else is out there, <laughs> And so we are digging in every place around the world. Digging for this, digging for that, digging for the next thing, digging for that thing. I don't want that thing anymore. I'm after this big thing. Maybe that thing will finally satisfy me, give me life and fulfillment and joy and peace and hope. When in reality, our treasure, our salvation, our sustainer has been with us the whole time. And the Christian life is more and more saying, I'm not gonna dig out there anymore. I'm going to rejoice in what I have here. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Oh, Lord, I pray, first of all, that you'd give us clarity on any areas in our life that that we may not have realized that something else is on the throne of our life and it's not you. I pray that you'd help us to see it, Lord. Lord. I thank you for putting this passage in our Bible. So some of these truths are uncomfortable. Some of them we don't like to hear. But Lord, they are there that we might be freed from a life of slavery, freed from pursuing things that have no life in them. And so Lord, I, I, I thank you for it. But second, Lord, I pray that right now, we would not be left with, okay, I've got idols, I need to deal with them. But rather, not just what we flee from, but Lord, what we flee toward. Lord, help us to flee towards something far better. Lord, the world promises life, and it is a mirage. Our life is in you. Lord, our world promises freedom, but our freedom is found in you. Lord, our world promises hope, but our hope is found in you. Lord, in every case, you have something far better than what the world and its idols can offer. So, Lord, I pray that as we sing, you'd loosen our grip, if needed, on on the thing that we're holding, on the idol that we're holding. And instead, may we turn and run to Christ and offer all we are to the only God who loves us back. In Jesus' name, amen.